welcome to today's episode of Rise Up Voices from the Frontlines. My name is Krista Fee and I'll be your host. And today I'm bringing to you a guest from a side of first responding that I'm extraordinarily familiar with. And we, this is the first time that we've actually had a guest on here that is from the crisis intervention and crisis response world. So I would like to welcome Kelly Moore, Senior Safety Specialist. Thank you, glad to be here. So this is a topic that a lot of people don't like to talk about, but a lot of people are really, really afraid is going to happen to them. So one of the topics that we're gonna talk about today is school shootings and the work that you're doing to help prepare and prevent and respond to those types of instances. How comfortable are you uh, in just having these conversations in the in the normal world? Uh, very comfortable. You know, I think we have to have these discussions um, as um, many of us try to avoid them. I think we have to have them. It builds resilience. It builds responsibility, expectation, all of these things that um, are crucial uh, when you're having your worst day. Right. This is not an ignore it and it will go away problem. And it's not a one and done thing. This is something that um, we are going to be experiencing probably well past my lifetime. So tell us a little bit about you when you were younger and what brought you to this place in your life where you're doing this particular work. So um, I'll uh, acknowledge that I only have about uh, a half hour, 45 minutes here, so I won't go all the way back to when I was younger. Um, but I've always been interested in law enforcement. My college education went into uh, law enforcement and then um, uh, I began my career um, back in 1984 with the Sheriff's Department in Southern California. And then as luck would have it, I guess, um, I was able to um, advance through up to um, the command staff where um, I was lucky enough, I think, um, fortunate enough, blessed, however you want to say that, to spend a significant amount of time in the uh, emergency management, incident management, and crisis response um, realm. And yes, I retired about five years ago now. Wow. Um, and then I started working for a school district. Um, and I took what I learned to try to help them with their safety program. Um, and uh, shortly after that, I now work for a company that provides software and emergency management uh, apps and stuff for um, K-12, the K-12 environment. So, um, you know, one of the things that really got me passionate about this uh, later part was um, I was actually the incident commander for a, a significant uh, active shooter in a small town right next to our uh, college. Uh, and um, I didn't do it correctly. Um, I made a lot of mistakes. Um, we made a lot of mistakes. And um, understanding that we needed to learn how to do this better, um, I took up educating myself on that. 
I have noticed as, as I researched this, um, all of the recommendations and all of the suggestions and all of the standards that this is a topic that is still, it's still being studied. It's still not fully understood. We don't have an, we don't have a profile of what kids are the highest risk. We don't have a, one singular standardized protocol for what we're supposed to teach kids and what we're supposed to teach schools and what we're supposed to teach parents. Mm -hmm. All of this is still um, kind of being negotiated in the systems. So how important is it that people educate themselves as much as possible? And what tools and resources do you think are the best for people to look at? So, um, yeah, it, it just baffles me. We are 24 years past law enforcement safety. Consider the water moment of Columbine. And um, we're still learning. And I think we sh should be learning, but we're not really making any progress. We're learning about what happened before, but we're not implementing, we're not um, uh, innovating to the point where our our kids are safe and one of the issues that we have is a lot of the the so-called solutions that we're seeing are politically motivated not necessarily response based or prevention based where we can really look at um what it is that we want us that we want our schools our teachers our communities to do to prevent this violence and you know uh, again 24 years past columbine and our teachers are still looking at us and saying this isn't my job i didn't get into teaching to do this well you may not have but um uh, you're here and this is part of your responsibility so why don't we use your education expertise and, and become students of this ourselves? And why don't we figure this out ourselves? Um, you know, we, we've seen what are prescribed as the standard for, from the, uh, you know, the federal government and so forth. And I think the federal government should, but what we're seeing is not necessarily based in reality for the k-12 environment and you know we all know about the standard of run hide fight but in the k-12 environment that's not practical i mean it's an option absolutely an option but using that as our standard is not necessarily what we are we should be doing i mean uh, we've talked before and and um having uh and I asked this question, what is, where's the best place for you to be during a school shooting? Obvious answer is somewhere. Right here. <laughs> so in order to do that, um, we would typically have to run in the run, hide, fight, right? The problem is, is now try translating that to educational environment where teachers are responsible for sometimes upwards of 40, 50 kids and trying to get them all in a safe place by running away from where they're at. It's not practical. So um, is it an option? Yes. But this is what's causing 
some of the confusion in this industry is what are our standards? What is the solution and how do we do this? So one of the things, one of the things that we've learned early on is that panic, uh, parental interference, community interference, parking, all of these things that happen in the middle of a crisis, not even just a school shooting, but crisis in general, the tendency of people is to want to go to the scene and do something. Mm -hmm. What do you have to say about those patterns and what can we do differently? So first of all, we have to educate our parents and our community. Uh, when you have um, any significant event, um, especially an act of violence at a school campus, law enforcement, the fire departments, um, our first responders are all going to shut down that campus. You're not going to be able to get there. And responding to the campus as a, a concerned parent or um, a, a community member or what have you, I, I understand that urge, but we got to educate them to say, look at all you're doing is complicating things. You're becoming part of the problem, not part of the solution. And we need to educate them on what we want them to do. So we need to communicate with them what we want them to do. And that is essentially stay home until you get word where we want you to go. Um, we should be telling them what information we have currently. We'll update them regularly and uh, stand by for instructions. And we have to be very specific about where to go to get that information because we understand how much misinformation in today's age is put out there and um you know when we start talking about uh, preparing for this and working through this um you know we we i i use the um term if you want peace you have to prepare for war right and um in doing that that doesn't mean you have to um prepare in such a way that you're going to do harm to people, right? And um, I, I think we have to be very cognizant of how we respond, how we manage incidences is likely to cause more trauma to those involved than the actual incident, that very short period of time, that five, six, seven, 10 minutes, that very short period of time in the overall scheme of the incident if we don't manage that bigger picture, then we're gonna have a lot more issues to deal with for a lot longer period of time. Part of the deep, the issues that you're talking about are the post-traumatic stress responses and the, the fear and, and increased injuries and things like that that could have been avoided. Is that, am I reading you correctly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we've seen many incidences where um, you have a school that handles it very well. And you know, sure, there's, there's going to be a level of trauma, a level of uh, anxiety, um, post-trauma, level of injuries, you know, all of that, you know, the physical and emotional mental trauma that we have in crisis, you can't avoid it completely. But um, when you have those well-managed incidences, that trauma is pretty much um, mitigated once the incident is over, 
because everyone is doing, they're seeing what they expect to see. And they're seeing things that make sense to them. But if we mismanage that and they're questioning, well, why aren't we doing this? Why is this taking so long? Why is, why aren't, is my kid not in front of me right now? We've been here for four hours. There hasn't been a shot fired in for four hours. And all we're doing is increasing that trauma. So if we prepare to manage this correctly, I think um, we've said this before, is um, if we have, generally speaking, I'm, there's there's several incidences we can point to, but generally speaking, if um, we have an incident of... Uh, an active shooter, our initial responders will handle that fairly well and fairly quickly. That's a problem that's for law enforcement is easily solved if they're allowed to, right? But the management of that incident will go on for often days years, depending on how, how well it's managed. Right. Um, and, uh, if we don't recognize that and we don't put that into our, um, planning and our preparations, then it is going to be an issue and we're going to have to deal with that, whether we like it or not. So I, I think we can pretty much, um, engineer, the trauma out of this, the unexpected trauma. Expected, we can we can deal with that. We can prepare for that. But when you're talking about um, twenty um, law enforcement professionals that aren't allowed to do what they're trained to do because they haven't gotten the okay to go, that's a huge issue. And that's going to be something that's going to affect everybody. And we've witnessed that in recent years. So one of the steps that you're talking about uh, in the aftermath is the role that I play, the psychological first aid, debriefing. Mm -hmm. And and that covers the first responders that responded to the situation Mm -hmm. and the students that experienced it and the teachers and coordinators and everyone else that's involved. Um, But that usually doesn't come the day of the situation. So what steps are you talking about um, immediately following the law enforcement taking their, doing their process and children being returned to the parents? So um, some of those can happen that day. And if you plan for that and you support them during the reunification, just knowing who you're going to have to target um, for services and support tomorrow is a big issue, right? Um, it, and this is what I, I'm saying we should do no harm or the least amount of harm that we can during the plan, planning process. You know, the recovery starts long before the incident is over, we should be looking at how we are um, treating everybody. Uh, you know, are we doing 
uh, what we're expected to do? Are we living up to expectations and, and understanding our responsibilities? But if I know that the incident is going to create trauma level X and I can prepare for that. And if I know that the, um, at some point I'm going to have to reunify kids with their families and I have a good formal process with that, then I can allow and account for counseling as part of the reunification process. So while their kids are sitting there in an assembly area, waiting for their parents to come pick them up and to be reunified, I can have trained staff looking for those who are having adverse reaction to what happened. And I can pull them out and say, are you okay? And based upon their response, you can either send them back or you can send them to, you know, an immediate grief counselor who can take their information so that you can check up on them tomorrow with a phone call or a visit or what, what have you, whatever the appropriate level of, of care is and support is. But if I don't um, plan for that and I just uh, send the kids away, then now I'm going to have to stand up a grief center and I'm going to have to have all of these things in place for weeks to come being that they're going to show up. But if I know that they're there and I know they're having issues and this goes for the staff as well, this isn't just the, the students. And do I have people in the parent assembly area looking for parents who are not handling this correctly? Right. Or as expected. So, um, you know, there's there's ways to mitigate this from the very get go. And, you know, I'm a big advocate of the I Love You Guys Foundation and their processes, the standard response protocols and the standard reunification method. And, you know, from their processes, they include that in there. They include the ability to have interviews. Uh, counseling, all of these different aspects. And, you know, they like to say, you know, recovery starts when the event starts. If we do it correctly, if we wait till the end before we start the reunification process and the recovery process, all you're doing is prolonging the inevitable. You're going to have to, you're going to have to do this. You're prolonging it and you're prolonging the time frame which people are going to start feeling um, more trauma and be more likely exposed to trauma. So with all of your observations and experiences, what are you doing now that is helping to mitigate this problem? So um, my, my primary func- function with um, the company I work for, Crisis Go, is to educate teachers, the education administrators, the safety teams on what it is that um, they should be doing to mitigate all of this stuff and trying to figure out how we can educate them, what it means to be safe and what it means to get there. Uh, because right now we're, we're at this uh, crossroads, let's, let's say that, um, I'm not sure we're actually at the crossroads, but 
we're at a point where um, teachers and school systems are buying into you need in order for you to be safe, you need a panic button. And you press this panic button that goes directly to law enforcement or the fire department to whomever you have you need. You press that button and you're going to be safe. The problem is, is that's only the first step. That doesn't make you safe. And if you have to press that button, it's already too late, right? The event has already started. So I'm looking at trying to educate people from the, what is known in many, especially the military, but more and more in law enforcement, what happens what they call left a bang before the incident is triggered. What happens before that? And what can we do to one, prevent it from ever happening? And what can we do to mitigate it should it happen? And that includes counseling, um, psychological and emotional support, and all of these things that we can set up to make them more resilient. And you know, one of my biggest challenges is to answer this question, why do we have to drill in active shooter situations? That causes trauma. And my response to that is, imagine having an active shooter in your building and you have never experienced the drill and you have no idea what to do. Even if you understand lockdown, okay, I need lockdown. But what if you're at lunch when that happens and you're not just sitting in the classroom when it happens what if you're out at recess you're out at the um, uh, football game or whatever Um, so can you imagine the trauma created by experiencing an active shooter for the first time and not knowing anything about what to do i i'm not a uh, trauma professional, but even, even I can think and imagine that that's not a good picture. Right. There's a huge part of feeling out of control. That is an element of how powerful the reaction is going to be in someone. So these kids who are prepared and habituated to do certain things, to take certain actions are going to be more protected psychologically than kids who panic and don't know what they're doing and that sense of being out of control is going to make them more at risk we do know that much right so what we're talking about is building resilience right and a more resilient staff a more resilient student population more resilient community because uh, you know we look at um doing these drills these common drills you know uh lockdown uh, secure, evacuate, shelter, hold. We we look at doing those, but we're very short-sighted on the effects of teaching that properly. And what I mean by short-sighted is we generally try to, we imagine it as this is all while you're in school. But we, we know that a um, pretty big and significant majority of all acts of violence occur outside of the school. So what we really should be doing is training our population to respond to acts of violence anywhere, not just in your school, 
and not just um, while you're uh, attending a school activity, but anywhere. And we really need to have these skills, stop the bleed, understanding where, where and when to um, shelter, do what, do whatever, take an some sort of emergency protective action, whatever that is to you. Um, but if you don't train that and you don't understand that, that we're te teaching, we should be teaching a life skill, then we're going to have more and more fatalities because one of the things that is occurring is I, I think the emergency services professionals are learning fairly well on what's going on. It's part of their natural process to do after action reviews. I'm not sure the uh, school settings are in line with that just yet. And, um, you know, until we get there, um, we're going to keep experiencing these things. So you're, you have a big focus on prevention. And part of that is looking at um, vulnerable children mm -hmm. and what kids are at risk for becoming dangerous. And I know I'm supposed to say that we don't have a profile for, for an actual profile for school shooters. But what we do know is they tend to be kids who don't feel like they belong, who mm -hmm. don't feel like they're a part of something, and who feel like they've been ostracized from other students for some reason or another, whether mm -hmm. it's true or whether it's perceived. So what, in your experience, can we do to improve our awareness of risk factors and um, to protect the kids that are vulnerable and keep this from happening? Yeah. So. Um... You know, I I use this term because it's familiar. And what we, we should be doing is looking at um, concerning behaviors within our student population. And the term that we should be doing threat assessments and we should be doing them correctly. We should train them. We should teach them. And... But the problem is, is currently we, we are waiting way too long to do the quote threat assessment. We typically do that when we receive a threat about a student and um, uh, what we're trying to do is identify the level of threat and um, what we need to do to prevent this th threat from being carried out. Typically, we're doing that in the secondary school level, either um, late middle school, early high school, right? The problem is, is the causation of that ideology of threatening behavior started in elementary school. You know, kids were being bullied, they're uh, victimized or, or whatever um, they have. And... Um, you know, threat assessments really should be utilized more in not what is currently a threat, but what the potential for threat is. And if we start identifying uh, behaviors as soon as possible, and I'm not excluding kindergarten, if we look at concerning behavior and we don't address concerning behavior and 
that child continues to matriculate through their their academic career and nobody's addressed it because they've said oh that's just schoolyard behavior that's just johnny being johnny then and we don't address that appropriately at the earliest stage every time we don't address that it becomes harder and harder to address down the road uh, from a non-professional's uh, point of view and you know and i've i've had principals do threat assessments on first graders um, and uh, there was an incident between a first grader and a fourth grader and they asked me what what i should do i said you should do a threat assessment are you kidding me first grader and a, and a fourth grader i says yes and i won't go into the whole story but it really is um, about both of those children, the first grader and the fourth grader, exhibiting bullying behavior towards each other. And it's not about the threat that was made. The younger one threatened to kill the older one, which was the threat, right? It was really about intervening and stopping that cycle of bullying before it becomes a continued and reinforced behavior. And we have to address both of them and not just one of them um, because the, the situation was such that the fourth grader was the instigator until the first grader made the threat and um, the fourth grader claimed, I'm just a victim here. You came at that, that younger child with from a position of power. That's a bullying situation. Um, so I, I don't think it is ever too early to start addressing uh, concerning behavior. And I think we have to do that better. I have heard people say teaching, teaching children social skills may be a helpful in the scenario. So empathy and connection and communication and all of these, what we call soft skills, Mm -hmm. as adults uh, that we don't actually really purposefully teach children how to interact with each other correctly do you think there's an element of prevention that could come from a, a shift in programming to some of those softer skills yeah absolutely you know um you know conflict resolution problem solving socialization um is a real thing there's there's a a very large challenge here because of our addiction to the internet and um, these devices where people, kids, uh, you know, are on these devices as early as, you know, one and two years old as babysitting devices. And they think this is healthy but they're not getting the socialization that is natural at those age. They're not, they're not going to preschool. They're not going to daycare. Um, they're not going to these things because we have this little um, device in front of them. And, you know, they're watching, uh, it's been a long time since I've watched kids uh, programming on, on those, but <laughs> you, you get where I'm going at it at, yeah. with this is um, they're, Oh, this is a good, healthy, um, uh, thing for my child is it because they're not really interacting and i think you know we're 
I think we're seeing some of the the product of that now that was uh, exacerbated by the pandemic is um, we're seeing kids that were marginally social beforehand. They got isolated for a year or more. Um, and then all of a sudden we're, we're seeing the effects of being isolated for a, a long period of time. And, um, and that is concerning everybody, not just academically, but emotionally. So I know this is a super controversial topic. Um, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of research that goes both directions. Uh, do you, in your your opinion, because I know that you just have to go opinion here, do you feel like exposure to the massive amount of violence that our kids are being exposed to through media and video games has any influence whatsoever? Like, does this play a, a part in this problem? So uh, here, I've been asked this question many times. So here's my response. Um, and and we've uh, talked about Lieutenant uh, Dave Grossman, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, and um, his uh, theories on uh, gaming and the effects they have on children. And, um, you know, this is one of those things where you have the, there's enough, you have some evidence that it does influence kids and you have evidence that it doesn't influence kids. And I think that those kids who are susceptible to being influenced are going to be influenced. Um, and I'll give you an example. Um, uh, I, I don't think those games make kids violent. I do think that if they're going to be violent anyway, it makes them better at it, if that makes sense. And um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, my uh, son, who was uh, 10 at the time, uh, I asked him what he wanted for his birthday and you know, paintball was just coming up and we wanted, uh, he wanted a paintball. Uh, set so that we the two of us could go paintballing or he could go paintballing with his friends and so uh we got some paintballs and we went to this place in uh the area that i lived and we went out and started shooting at each other and uh, we we had rules um they weren't always followed but we had rules and um uh as we're going and uh we're, we're starting to search for each other. I couldn't find him. He's a 10 year old kid. And all of a sudden he tags me and, um, I said, okay, we're done. And that was one of the rules. If you get shot, you, you have to stop, stop and regroup. Cause we, I wanted to check to make sure there weren't any injuries. Right. But he got me and I look up and he's at the high ground behind cover and he's 10 years old. I said, where did you learn to do that? You know, that's a, a more advanced uh, tactical um, maneuver. And he goes, video games. That's what we do in video games. So what I, the reason I'm saying that is because it didn't make him um, a violent person 
and he's not a violent person to this day, but he was much better tactically because he learned this from, from that. So that, that's my take on this. And I, I do think that um, one of the things, you know, when we start talking about the prevention and where people are on the pathway to violence, I do think violent video games, if you are one of those kids who have been identified as a potential threat, I do think you, you transition on that pathway to violence quicker. And because there's, there's a big step between the grievance stage or the victimization stage. I've added that to the, to the pathway to violence. I've added that because there's steps before the grievance. Um, so the victimization turns into a grievance that goes into violent ideation. I think video games and such give them this idea that violence can be a solution. And so um, it, does it have an effect? Yes. Do I think it makes kids violent? I don't think it does. But if you're prone to becoming violent, I think it, it certainly helps you push along that road. You could almost look at it the same as the suicide prevention model that that step of rehearsal is kind of where that might fall in to play in that if you're going, if you're already thinking suicidal thoughts, you may take preparatory rehearsal type actions. So a kid who is prone to violence may be using video games as a way to visualize the, the potential outcomes and to practice what it might be like sure. and to get comfortable with the experience. Yeah. So when we're talking about prevention and um, suicide, there, there's one thing I, I, and I'll ask your opinion on this, um, because generally speaking, in the school setting, we treat suicide risk and threat risk separately. And, you know, I've, I've instructed my, um, staff and in my uh, schools that I uh, consult with, I've instructed them to, you really have to be very careful with, when you start looking at uh, suicidal ideation, you also have to be aware of the threat to others. Because for me, it's a very short bridge to cross from being suicidal to being homicidal. And in fact, there's um, uh, evidence that there are online um, channels that encourage people who are suicidal to um, uh, become homicidal as well. Yeah, there is. I like the way you phrase that because we don't want to say there is definitely an association, but there is a short bridge. And really what is causing the person to feel like their life is, um, is not worth living. Mm -hmm. You know, it's this often the same causations, it's the same pathway. So uh, what's the switch between the two, whether, whether I choose to take my life or whether I choose to take others with me, mm -hmm. the, 
the cause and effect, the risk, the all of the different things that people use to make decisions, what is the punishment going to be if I choose that pathway? Well, if I'm not here, it doesn't much matter, does it? Right. Like I'm right. not punished. So what's the deterrence? Right. And and the other the other side of that is if a suicidal person is thinking my life is not worth it, not worth living any longer, and it doesn't matter, my life doesn't matter, right? If I take people with me, at least it mattered at that point, right? And so, um, you know, that's where I believe that we we have to look at things, things not so much in uh, a silo that are separate, but are they relational and, and how relational is everything that we do um, in, in the prevention side. So I am heavy on prevention, but I'm also heavy on the other side because I think we have to balance that. And when I mean the other side, I'm talking about the other side of bang, you know, the right side after something happens, how are we responding? How are we um, managing those incidences? Because you never, ever, even though it happens more times, probably 90% of the time, you never really want to have the worst day in your life as a school administrator to be the first time that you've talked to your fire department, your, your police departments, your hospitals as to what we're going to do. Because, you know, seconds do matter, minutes matter. And the longer it takes for you to figure that out, the more trauma you are causing, whether it's physical, emotional, psychological, or what have you. Um, if you if you are really wasting your time trying to figure out what you're going to do next, then you're wasting, literally, you're wasting um, people's lives. So how can people get a hold of you? Or um, so um, uh, Kelly Moore at Crisis go.com my phone number my cell phone number is area code 805-689-9629 and i'm happy to talk to anybody about uh these processes that i engage in um and i'm happy to to really i don't charge for my service my company pays me to do this to educate the public and educate law enforcement uh, fire departments, the school systems, you know, municipalities, they, that's what they pay me to do. Um, so I also, um, on crisisgo.com, we have a blog series for education, a blog and podcast. And, um, my podcast is, uh, coffee with Kelly and, uh, you can get that wherever podcasts are housed, whatever that means. Right, like us on all the different streaming things you can't even keep track anymore. Yeah, right, right. Well, I know that your time is short with us today. So I want to thank you so much for being here and talking about this uncomfortable topic that is so absolutely necessary. And are there any last words that you would want, like words of wisdom or? I, I guess we started off with the best wisdom that I could give somebody is you have to become a student of uh, this topic. If you're responsible for the care and safety of our kids and um, or responding to an incident, 
law enforcement um, understand the differences between the schools and everything else that we do. Um, but if you become a student of this, everyone becomes a student. We, we don't necessarily need a standard because we will know what the options are given our, our uh, unique set of circumstances and we can respond and we can do that quickly and um, you can literally save lives. You know, my time in the schools, um, I characterize as probably the most rewarding part of my job that I've ever done because it was the most proactive that I did to protect my community. Everything else was in response to. So if we get involved with our schools and our schools safety, then, and we know what we're talking about, then um, it, there's nothing better. I love that. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of Rise Up, Voices from the Frontline. I hope that you took some valuable information that you can apply, and I hope that you will reach out and be proactive in all of your mental health and wellness for your body, mind, spirit, for your family, for your community. There's so much that we can do ahead of time to keep everybody happier and healthier. So again, thank you so much for being with us today. If you love this podcast and you want to support us, you can make a tax deductible donation at B-A-T-T-L-E, the number two, B-E.org, battletob.org. Uh, and that helps us keep this podcast going and provide mental health and wellness response and care for our military and frontline first responders, as well as for our vulnerable youth populations. Thank you so much and have an amazing day.